Now, a question I'd, I'd like to ask to get started would be, you know, why is it important for therapists or any kind of mental health professionals to have a basic understanding of attachment, attachment theory and attachment dynamics? Well, I mean, the, the, one of the basic ideas um, that Bowlby developed was that we need, as it were, what you might call an interpersonal immune system. So in order to survive, I mean, Bowlby was essentially a Darwinian, as am I. So you might say, as it were, the, the function of, or one of the roles of life um, is uh, reproduction. But in order to reach adulthood and to reproduce, you have to survive. Therefore, you have to be able to forage and get food, um, and you have to um, protect yourself from predation. So Bowlby developed this idea, um, uh, which he called uh, the, the, the environment of, of, of evolutionary adaptation. His idea is that um, it's not, it wasn't unique to him, and he, in fact, he developed it with a, 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 an ethologist, Robert Hind, that we have to think about our evolutionary ancestors and that we are genetically fairly similar to them and that we've inherited not just our physical characteristics, but also our behavioral characteristics. And the story, let me tell the story, some people call this a bit of a just so story, but the story they developed, which I find very convincing, is the idea that um, essentially human beings, here they are, they're on the Ogbai Gorge, um, which is now in uh, Kenya um, and Ethiopia. Um, and it's a fairly hostile environment. Um, and we humans have essentially got two uh, things that give us a bit of an edge. And the two things that give us a bit of an edge are one, our brain, and the other, each other. We're a social species. And um, uh, united we stand, um, single we fall. I haven't got that quote quite right. So we need a kind of behavioral system that's built into our nervous system which is going to enable us to survive in a hostile environment. We can't run very fast. We haven't got very sharp teeth or claws, but we've got each other. And so the hind Bowlby idea um, was that we developed the attachment behavioral system. Now, what is the attachment behavioral system? The attachment behavioral system essentially is thinking about the fact of the extreme length of time of human in, in, uh, um, uh, 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 development, um, immaturity. Having lived in a rural area, I know very well um, this time of year, lambing a lamb within half an hour or an hour of birth is up and running, suckling the mother, standing. Well, it takes us a year to stand even. Mm -hmm. So human immaturity, human beings are born in a state of extreme immaturity. One ex possible explanation for this that uh, people give is that, as I said, our two great characteristics are the fact that we're a social species and our big brains, but we've got to get that big brain through the birth canal. And in order to get that big brain through the birth canal, we have to be born in a state of extreme immaturity. So a newborn infant is incredibly vulnerable to predation. Therefore, we need a behavioral system to ensure that when that infant is threatened, help is at hand. And so the attachment system, the idea of the attachment system is that when we are ill, tired, threatened, when there's a break in our connection with those on whom we depend, when there's loss or separation, this activates attachment behavior in the, uh, and that consists of seeking out an older, wiser individual, and it also entails distress, the expression of distress, because the expression of distress will activate the caregiving or the attachment giving dynamic in the caregivers. So we've got this kind of built into our nervous system and it's no less than we've got our immune system uh, built into our blood system and into our bone system, if you like. It protects us from danger, just as our immune system protects us from microorganism danger. 
Now, what's the relevance of all that to, to psychotherapy? Well, I, I, I think it's relevant in many ways. Um, but the two that I would pick out are, number one, psychiatric disorders or mental illness or the kinds of distress that individuals bring to therapists for help, many of those can be understood in attachment terms mm. because either the individual is kind of so dependent on their caregiver that they can't develop an autonomous life of their own. I mentioned autonomy a little while back. Or conversely, they are so untrusting of their caregiver that as it were, they have to do everything from them, for themselves. And that, that renders them very vulnerable because by recruiting others, by recruiting caregivers, we can create a kind of envelope which keeps us safe and enables us, as it were, to develop and carry out our various developmental tasks. So attachment explains, as it were, much of what goes on in the developmental process of infants and small children and indeed adolescents even, or provides a kind of theoretical framework for thinking about that. That's the first point. And the, the, and the ways in which that may go wrong and the ways in which that go, may go wrong then may lead to psychological distress in adult life. Uh, by the way, I have to say I'm, I'm an adult psychiatrist. I've never worked in child psychiatry except in family therapy. So, and the second point, in answer to your question, why should therapists be conversant with attachment theory, is in a kind of paradoxical way, therapy is in itself quite a threatening experience. Yeah. So if you imagine you've got a problem, you're depressed, your friends, your partner, your, even yourself says, I've got to get some help. And then you go to see somebody you've never met them before. It's a complete stranger. And in a way, you know that some kind of, well, using to use this metaphor, a kind of mental undressing has got to happen. Um, you've got to bear your soul. You've got to reveal your innermost thoughts. This is a really scary thing. And therefore, the attachment dynamic will be present. Now, that attachment dynamic may be present just for five minutes at the beginning of session, it might be present, I, I'm just saying this rather randomly, it could be present for five years in the course of a long-term therapy. It might take five years before someone really feels safe enough to begin to trust the therapist. So that's the beginning of therapy, both in terms of each session, but also in terms of the whole process. The attachment dynamic, I think, is also relevant to the end of every session and certainly to the end of therapy because built into attachment is the concept of loss. Loss is the kind of flip side of attachment. If you trust someone, if they become important in your life, if they're someone that protects you and enables you to grow and develop and explore, then... Sorry about the dog in the background. I've got the Don't dog... <laughs> It's not my dog. Um, then there's always the possibility, because we live in a world of contingency where we can't control everything, that that individual won't be there when you need them. They may be away, they may be ill. If you take an eatable point of view, they may be, as it were, focused on somebody else. It might be your mother's partner or your mother's other children or the, your mother's other children that she's going to have who are going to be just as important to her as you are. So loss is built into attachment. And of course, one way of avoiding loss is never to get attached. But of course, that's the sort of thing which may bring patients to therapy um, because they want to form relationships, but every time they enter into a relationship, they panic at the possibility, probably or at an unconscious level, of losing that individual. So I would say the end of every session may also trigger the attachment dynamic. And that's something that every therapist needs to be aware of. And even at a very, very practical level, I mean, I uh, always say rather in a rather sort of, not exactly cliched way, but I mean, there, there are exceptions to every rule. But I always say, never make an interpretation in the first five minutes or the last five minutes of any session, because the patient's 
will probably be in their attachment dynamic. Now, one of the things about the attachment dynamic is that it is incompatible with exploration. So what happens when someone feels threatened, when there's a break, when there's a rupture, when they're ill, they are pushed to seek out the attachment figure and their capacity to think, to explore, to play is inhibited because you can't explore and think and play when you're trying to find your attachment figure. Does that answer your question as to why it's important for therapists to know about attachment? It does. It does. To some extent. I mean, there's a lot more I could be saying about that secure attachment, insecure attachment, but I see that as kind of pretty fundamental. You've answered that question, but also several other of my other questions for the interview. So that's that's a good thing. Um, so the next thing I wanted to ask about Professor Holmes was um, a key concept that Bowlby developed. Well, maybe Bowlby and his colleagues um, was this idea of the secure base. And maybe the the example, I love the example you, you gave in one of your talks with us about um, nannies and toddlers in Regent's Park. That's just a really sort of I, I like that way to, to illustrate it. And then if you could talk about that and also um, what actually counts as an attachment relationship and how does someone know who their secure base is? Right. Well, okay. Taking those, those three, I think there are three sort of bits of that. I might take the second, third and third second. The nannies in Regent's Park is actually based um, on a real study that was done in the 1950s in the days when, middle-class children had nannies um, and their mothers were, I don't know what they were doing back home, sort of combing their hair. Um, and their daddies were out in the office. Um, and what the observer did, um, he simply watched what two three-year-olds or one and a half to three-year-olds, let's say, did in the park. And what he noticed was that they would explore so the nannies would sit on a bench and chat to each other about what whatever nannies chat to each other about how awful their employers are probably and how little they pay um, or whatever. And the toddlers would toddle off and explore Regent's Park because, as I just was describing, exploration is, uh, as it were, what we do when we feel safe. And then they would reach a kind of invisible, imaginolet line, as you might call it, that was whatever it might be, 30 yards away from the nanny. And then they would look back. They would, as it were, check that their secure base, their attachment figure was still there, that they were safe. So this process, I think, is one that is going on throughout the developmental, one's developmental history. And indeed, I think it's sort of true of adults as well. Uh, one of the points I like to make is that we don't actually, or Bowlby said this too, we don't outgrow the attachment dynamic, but it becomes a kind of internalized, which leads on to the, your third question, was, uh, which was, how do we find out who is our secure base? And the simplest answer to that for me is, uh, or the way I sort of ask my patients is, let's imagine you're sort of, I'm sorry to say this, to someone who lives in Glasgow, and I don't know whether it's Dublin or not, but anyway, maybe Cork. Um, if you're run over by the proverbial London omnibus and end up in hospital, who is the first person that you ring? And um, so that is just a very simple thing. And people, you know, can almost invariably, they know who the answer is. It's their partner, their mother, their dad, their sister, their best friend, um, their dog, um, whoever it is that is the person they turn to when they're in distress. And I think in a way that answers your third credit, well, it doesn't exactly answer it, but it does um, illustrate the fact that uh, um, attachment and the need for a secure base is not something that's outgrown. It's simply kind of latent in us adults. And, but in extremists, and if we think about what's happening in Ukraine at the moment, you can imagine, um, especially where these um, mothers and their children are separated from their partners, sons, fathers, um, that um, in these kind of circumstances, these are adults, but they will be experiencing probably extreme degrees of attachment insecurity. 
And whatever one may say about um, social media and mobile phones and that sort of thing, um, uh, you know, some people sort of say this kind of mitigates against, um, militates against um, relationships. But I think quite the opposite myself. Um, what's the first thing to do? You do, as it were, when you fly somewhere and get off the plane. Will you then text or ring your secure base to tell them that everything's okay? That then leads to the question of how, what exactly is a secure base? And also, I think it leads to the question, is a therapist a patient secure base? And that is quite an interesting um, and debatable question. So in a way, you could say, well, the secure base is the person that you um, turn to when you're in distress. And that isn't necessarily, as it were, your best friend, because your best friend might be someone you want to have really great time with or have really interesting discussions with. Um, but, you know, the person you ring when you end up in hospital might be your granny or someone like that. Um, if that's the only person you know who you really feel um, secure with, uh, is a therapist a secure base? It's an interesting. I mean, I think this sort of, in a way, I, I usually when asked this, I usually end up with a kind of mealy-mouthed answer, such as it depends. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. And in one sense, by definition, at least by conventional psychoanalytic psychotherapy definition, a psychotherapist can't be a secure base because you don't contact them between sessions. So something awful happens between sessions um, and you can't contact that person. They cannot, by definition, be a secure base. But I think people have now realized, particularly when working with people with personality disorders and particularly borderline personality disorders, that, that um, the therapist very often does become a secure base. And these are individuals who possibly in their developmental history never have had a secure base. And therefore there are ways around this some programs might, for instance, build in texting or even a max, up, you know, phone calls up to a maximum of three phone calls a week or something between sessions, which is an acknowledgement that the therapist does um, fulfill that role. And in a sense, you might say what the purpose of therapy or one of the purposes of therapy is for the person to have the experience of there being a secure base there, so that ultimately, as therapy comes to an end, as they move away from therapy and out into the world, they've got a kind of internal sense of the secure base, which we all have to some extent. If you think about a, you know, a child, a, a, a six-month-year-old needs the mother there. They will not survive without the mother. When they're in distress, when they're threatened, they'll have to cry and the mother will have to come and attend to them. Well, four and a half years later, that child's going to be going to primary school and mum's going to be saying, or dad's going to be saying, or caregiver's going to be saying goodbye to the child at the school gate. And the child will, as it were, have an internal sense of security, which can last at least for the few hours that they're spending um, away from the parent. I'm not totally convinced that I answered your question. So if you want to clarify, clarif if you want to clarify your question, please do so. No, no, you've, you've answered it well. That's 100%. Um, so next, you know, just, just I want to sort of cover here that this isn't just anecdotal. And there's been some really interesting research done on this from the likes of uh, Jim Cohn over in America. I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong. Yes, but this, the study um, where he, um, put, I think you put uh, husbands and wives, they put the wives in an fMRI scanner. Could you maybe tell us about that there, just so people have a bit of um, background about this? Um. Can I just come back to you, because this obviously struck you as an important study, but what makes you want to talk about that particular study? Um, I think it's just, it's just interesting to know what's happening at a physiological level, like what's actually happening in the brain whenever right. this dynamic is being activated and whenever it's absent. You know, that's what I find interesting about it. I mean, I think, you know, the, 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 Role of attachment, uh, or the yes, the role of attachment in relation to romantic relationships is hugely interesting and important. And I, I, I was going to say, but wasn't sure whether I would, that uh, um, when I was talking about how you can sort of have a fascinating intellectual discussion or great fun with a friend, and they wouldn't necessarily be a secure base, I could have added 
You could even be having sex with someone, uh, happy sex, if you like, but they wouldn't necessarily be um, a secure base. I think the, the, the research on the whole shows that it takes about two years into a, a romantic relationship for that kind of secure base relationship to establish itself. Um, and so um, the study that you're talking about, um, which is now a little bit probably not exactly out of date, but it was uh, conducted you know, 10, 15 years ago, was um, that Jim Cohen was, and his colleagues were interested in what, as you say, what are the um, neuroscience aspects of intimate relationships? And what they did was to advertise in Baltimore, it was, the study was conducted in a local newspaper for happily married couples. And they then, um, I think they, and there was a small fee, um, they explained this would involve an fMRI study. And about 150 couples replied. Um, and they then did um, further culling, if you like. They wanted to pull out the very happily married couples. And I was actually half jokingly say they had a questionnaire and my wife and I filled it in and um, we decided we probably wouldn't have been included in the study. But they ended up with couples who were very, ha very happily married um, by their own self-definition. They then uh, introduced the couples into a, a kind of an attachment um, experimental setup. And it consisted of one member of the couple, it was the wives, um, in an fMRI scanner. And these wives were told, you will, at some point in the next 20 seconds, experience a mild electric shock to your left leg. So there was a very slight threat. And they did this under three different conditions, on their own, holding a stranger's hand and holding their husband's hand. And they were particularly interested um, in the um, HPA axis. They were interested in the what was going on in the pituitary, hypothalamic, pituitary, adrenal axis as a measure of threat arousal, if you like. Mm. And unsurprisingly, you might say, the least threat arousal was with the spouse and the greatest was with when they were on their own, and then holding a stranger's hand was somewhere in between the two. So there's something about being in the presence of a secure base, which enables you, as it were, to withstand and to negotiate threat. That is essentially the sort of the take home message from that study. I mean, two points that I'd like to add to that. One, which is a little bit relevant actually to uh, Roe v. Wade, this awful thing that's happening in America now, was they were worried that the sort of um, uh, fundamentalist outright would latch onto the study and say, well, you know, Christian marriage is you know, the best thing that can possibly be. So they did the same study with gay couples and found actually the very same findings. If anything, the reduction in threat was even greater when uh, gay couples were holding each other's hands. That was one point. Um, and I think the second point I want to make is one, we may come onto this or not, but it illustrates what I like to call the borrowed brain. It illustrates the fact that we are a social species and that we uh, operate far more effectively and far more safely when we are uh, in groups, in this case, a group of two, a married couple. And there's a kind of division of labor, you might say, so that the husband who isn't going to experience the shock can, as it were, down-regulate the attachment system on behalf of his wife. So you have to think of these two brains as being kind of linked via the held hand and the previous history, however long these couples have been together and their happiness and all the positive interactions that have happened between them. That creates a kind of shared or borrowed brain situation where the husband can kind of cognitively down-regulate so he will, as it were, be sending the message, probably non-verbally, to the wife's brain, look, this is okay, it's all going to be all right, it's only a very mild shock, I'm here, if anything goes wrong, then you can rely on me to be there for you. And I like to think that something 
similar without necessarily holding in hand occurs or builds up in the course of a psychotherapeutic relationship so that the client can then, as it were, face the pain and stress, the shocks, to use that word in a more general sense, of their lives in the presence of the therapist, whereas they might not have been able to face those shocks, might have had to switch off or switch down or repress or project all that mental pain. They can now, as it were, experience it and process it, and it no longer becomes threatening to their existential being. That's really interesting. And to me, that sort of <clears throat> emphasizes the importance of creating safety and creating trust in the therapeutic relationship. And that has to take time. And you've mentioned before about how, you know, things like, like hot desking in the NHS can really get in the way of this and really hinder, hinder progress in therapy. Um, but also just moving on from that, the attachment, um, attachment dynamics are more than just about safety. There's also affect regulation that's that's important here as well. And could you maybe tell us about um, contingency and and mir mirroring in psychotherapy and what, what role that plays? Well, I think there are two points I want to make here then. Um, yeah, contingency and mirroring is something, again, going back to studies that were done in the 90s. So we're talking about sort of getting on for 30 years ago. Um, by Gurgley and Watson in particular, and they observed mothers and babies together in the first six months of, of life. And they were particularly struck, this is a kind of quantitative research, you might say, um, observational research. They were very struck by the fact that in the course of a caregiving day, there are frequent, relatively brief periods of infant mother eye to eye contact. And they tried to understand that. And what they observed looking more closely were two features of that eye to eye contact, which they called contingency and mirroring. Now, what do they mean by that? Well, contingency was the idea that these mothers simply observed their infants and waited for the infant to make the first move. So if the baby was a little bit miserable or something, they'd notice that, or if the baby was very excited, they'd notice that. So the mothers in these periods wouldn't necessarily initiate any kind of affective content, contact. And then when the infant had, as it were, said something, their face, their gesture, their vocalization, the mother would then mirror it. Now she'd mirror it in an exaggerated way as though she's giving the message to the baby, I am seeing, hearing, thinking, feeling what you are seeing, hearing, thinking, and feeling. So if the baby was looking a little bit miserable, the mother might go something like, oh, we are feeling a bit miserable today, aren't we? And Gurgley and Watson's idea was that the, this, as it were, marked the fact that the mother's, uh, what the mother is saying was to do with the baby and not to do with herself, but it was a mirroring. And they, um, well, I don't know about they, but I draw the conclusion from that, that the mother is, as it were, telling a story to the infant about that affective world. And that is shown to the infant, I mean, literally shown through the mother's face and vocalizations. The baby can then internalize that and begin, as it were, to understand and recognize their own feelings. And that is one of the strands which leads on towards this concept, this very important concept that's come out of the attachment research of mentalizing. Because to mentalize is to be able to understand your own feelings and other people's feelings and the relationship between them. So this marked mirroring and contingency is one ingredient of that, which is the germ, the, 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 the beginnings of beginning to have a kind of sense of what your feelings are. And we see it in all kinds of ways. I sometimes give the example of the baby cries in the middle of the night, the caregiver or parent goes to the child. There are all sorts of possibilities why that child is crying. They may be hungry, they may be hot, they may need a new nappy, they may have a, you know, a nappy change, um, they may be too cold, maybe they feel lonely, maybe they've had a bad dream. 
And the caregiver, through sensitivity and responsiveness, as it were, reads the child's affects and then feeds that back in a number of ways. So the child is, as it were, gesturally describing, you know, they haven't got the words, but they're gesturally describing their own feelings. The mother gesturally is responding. So the mother says, oh, you're, I think it must be too hot, takes off a blanket or something. The baby continues to cry. So the baby's saying, no, it's not that. Then the mother says, oh, maybe you need a bit of a feed. So the mother puts the baby to the breast and then the baby relaxes and stops crying. So the mother is uh, saying, oh, you need a feed, you need comfort. And the baby's saying, yes. And all the while, the mother probably will be talking to the baby um, so that actually the words, the sounds, and also the sort of tone of voice will be internalized by the child. So uh, that was marked mirroring and contingency and leading on or leading in the direction of mentalizing. Was there something else? Yes, well, there are a couple of other points. Winnicott, who was a kind of intuitive, in my opinion, theoretician, rather than a systematic theoretician, Donald Winnicott, psychoanalyst. But he, sort of almost as a throwaway remark in one of his papers, says um, something like, the mother's face is the mirror where the infant first finds him or herself. And, and I also usually make the point that we live in a world of mirrors. I'm glad to say in my daughter's house at the moment, I have some difficulty in finding a mirror because I thought I'd better at least sort of brush my hair before talking to you. Um, but we live in a world of mirrors, uh, but it hasn't always been the, same, the case. And our species, um, which has, after all, been around for 200,000 years, um, didn't have many mirrors um, you know, for the first sort of, until the last 100 years, probably. And then it was only the upper classes. So how do we know who we are? Well, we know who we are because although we haven't got physical mirrors, we've got our mothers, our caregivers' faces. And this down-regulation, this regulation of affect, I think is also important from a neuroscience point of view, because I think we're beginning, or I'm beginning to uh, be thinking about what is going on in this kind of interplay between sensation, affective experience, enteroceptions, gut feelings, and the sense we make of our world and our life. And from a neuroscience point of view, you can think about this as upcoming sensations, which become feelings, which are then, as it were, from a top-down point of view, thought about and regulated, classified, all in the service, as it were, of maintaining the status quo, of reducing danger and surprise. And contingency and marking just is a kind of illustration of how this process depends on having another person there. That that child, without the mirroring mother, will find it very difficult to know what his or her feelings are and therefore will be handicapped or compromised in the interpersonal world in which we humans live and may end up as a psychotherapy patient. And a lot of the work that we do as therapists, I would say, is in this realm of marked mirroring and affect regulation and that ultimately the client will be as it were, borrowing the therapist's brain for that. And that a lot of the work that we do as therapists can also be seen in this contingency and marking way. Now, this is an interesting divide, if you like, between CBT technique and psychoanalytic technique, because psychoanalytic technique, not informed by any of this research at all, but just sort of intuitively, is, I think, very contingent. So you just wait, you have your, as Beyond put it, they always say Beyond invented this. He didn't. He's quoting T.S. Eliot, beyond memory and desire. So that's kind of having a blank screen, an open mind, an expectancy, a contingency approach so that you follow where the client leads. And then you make a comment, which will be a kind of marked comment. So it's going to be, that was quite a week you just described or something. Oh, what a dream. Wow. I mean, those kinds of remarks I see as 
um, equivalent to the mark mirroring I've described in the mother-infant relationship. That's my answer to that section. That, that is fascinating. Just the idea that as children, we learn what our emotions are and what our feelings are through this sort of mechanism with our with our caregiver where they they reflect back what we're feeling and then we learn about ourselves and internalize that and if we don't have that if that's missing from our lives then we don't um develop emotionally as as someone else who has this dynamic might might have um so professor Holmes, the next thing i'd like to ask you about is mary mean's work and or sorry, Mary Ainsworth's work and the strange situation experiment and the different attachment styles that there are and what, what she discovered through through that experiment. And you don't need to, I know there's a lot in there, so you don't need to maybe give us the full breakdown of how the experiment happened, but I suppose just kind of like the key the key takeaways from, from the strange situation. Well, Mary Ainsworth, I mean, I always say attachment theory actually was a joint creation between Bowlby and Ainsworth, but Ainsworth... Um, with Bowlby providing a kind of theoretical, almost philosophical overview, um, and Marion's worth actually doing the experiments and her pupils, her PhD students doing the next generation experience, experiments and the next generation of PhD students of PhD students. So there's a kind of lineage in attachment research, which does go back to Marion's worth. And I think you know, fundamentally, it's looking at individual differences as a rather a term I don't really like, but there we are. Um, in other words, we do react differently to ruptures, if you like, in life. And these differences are quite systematic. In other words, there are distinct patterns. And Mary, Main def uh, Mary Ainsworth developed a methodology, the strange situation, where these individual differences could be observed, classified. And as you probably know, she, uh, on the basis of a strange situation, four patterns have been identified, secure attachment, and then three varieties of insecure attachment. Initially, it was two. Um, insecure avoidant, insecure, uh, which is now called, usually called insecure dependent. Um, and then possibly from the point of view of psychopathology, most importantly, insecure disorganized. And um, these undoubtedly are valid phenomena and they've been replicated in thousands of experiments around the world. From the point of view of psychotherapy, I think there are a couple of points to make. Number one, they're very broad brush concepts. Mm. Um, number two, I like to, certainly like to think of them as potentials that exist in all of us, depending on circumstances, and that in particular, insecure attachment may be adaptive to particular circumstances. Um, the kind of example one could imagine or think about would be a fire in a theater. Now the securely attached individual may, as it were, cuddle their loved ones with them, say they've taken their children to a a pantomime, a Christmas pantomime or something, and a fire breaks out. Um, and they might be in terrible danger due to this insecure due to this secure attachment in that context. Yeah. Whereas an avoidant individual might just say, let's get out of here, rush to the nearest window, smash it and jump out, which would then lead the way for everybody else to follow. So their avoidant attachment is actually uh, adaptive. Um, so I think that does emphasize the importance of context. And there has been a critique of the attachment research suggesting that it, it's uh, this term secure attachment kind of only applies in what's sometimes known as the weird world, Western industrialized, rich, um, educated and democratic. Um, uh, and that if you're living in very different contexts, very different circumstances, um, then it might be highly appropriate as it were, and adaptive to be insecurely attached. So, um, but nevertheless, these, this kind of idea that there are kind of fundamental uh, patterns of dealing with threat, and that these are latent possibly in all of us, but brought out depending on context and our developmental history in different ways, 
I think is a useful contribution that um, psychotherapy, that attachment theory is made to psychotherapeutic work. But as I say, when you're sitting or with a, a client in your consulting room, um, knowing that they are disorganized um, in their attachment pattern, yes, may be helpful. It kind of, it's helpful like all labels in that it sort of um, objectifies the situation and it may enable you to tolerate some of the difficult experiences that you will have as a therapist with such a patient because you know that their capacity to form relationships is highly compromised due to the, their developmental history. So I think it, it, it is a useful thing for, for therapists to be aware of these individual differences in attachment patterns. Uh, does, that, um, does that help? Uh, just to mention Mary um, Main, whose name, you, and then you went to Mary Ainsworth, the two Marys, but Mary Main actually is the person who really developed the concept of, of disorganized attachment. Um, uh, and Maine was Ainsworth's PhD student. Yeah, no, that, that, that's really interesting and helpful. And I think anytime I've heard about attachment theory, it's always just the idea that secure attachment is, is like sort of like the best thing ever. But you're saying that it depends on context. And in some contexts, it might actually be more adaptive to be have an insecure attachment. And I've heard you talk about um, Victor Frankl in the past. You know, he was securely attached to his parents. And because of that, he didn't leave. Where was he based? Was it Austria? Yes, Vienna. And he didn't leave Vienna because he was security attached, and that was actually dangerous. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, um, I think just in terms of uh, any therapist listening to this, if they do identify that one of their clients might ha have a disorganized attachment style, um, have you got any sort of recommendations for working with someone with that in that that that, that might have that? Well, it would be quite a long list, I think. The, the, I mean, the, the, the essence, I think, of, of disorganized attachment is what Peter Fonagy calls um, epistemic um, hypervigilance. In other words, these are people who have learned not to trust and to be highly suspicious of everything that you may or may not say and everything that you may or may not do. And it's kind of safer not to trust than to trust. And you have in some way to rely on yourself and to kind of create a kind of self-attachment system. So therapists working with such patients may be longing to get on with therapy, make interpretations, create a kind of narrative for the patient, um, expect their patients to turn up on time, at the right place on the right day. And all of that may come to nothing because these expectations haven't taken into account the fact that the patient, although there may be part of the patient, one bit of the patient would leach, has at least committed themselves to therapy. There's another bit that thinks therapy is a complete waste of time, that therapists are out there just to exploit their patients, that anything the, patients, that the therapist says is probably bullshit. Um, that um, if you have a good session, it's quite a good idea never to go back the next week um, because that has rendered you vulnerable and they can then exploit you or even abuse you. So perhaps all this boils down to things like, if you're talking about advice to therapists, expect the unexpected, um, hang in there, um, be kind of very understanding of all the difficulties that may arrive and arise. And particularly go back possibly to the Jim Cohn studies and think hard and long and strong about your countertransference. In other words, these are possibly individuals who just cannot contain and regulate their own affect. But nevertheless, they will, as it were, have affects, sadness, loss, anger, rage, self-disgust. And much of that may be projected into the therapist. And so very important for therapists working with borderline patients to examine their own countertransference and think about those in relation to the patient. And if you've got a framework of the idea of the borrowed brain, that the patient is, as it were, 
wanting and expecting you to do the work for them. Um, mm. But ultimately, when they're ready, they can begin to do for themselves. And this is an interesting, from the theoretical point of view, my, to my mind, overlap between classical psychoanalysis as described by Bion and the attachment neuroscience ideas that are current in our uh, psychotherapy world. So I don't know if that was an answer, but that's how I, that would how I, how I, that would be how I would begin to talk about disorganized attachment in relation to therapy. Okay, thank you very much. Um, so another thing that uh, Mary Mean developed, I, I think it was Mary Mean, anyway, I might be wrong, but was the was it the adult attachment interview? Um, was that was that Mary Mean or Mary Ainsworth that developed that? Mary Mean. Um, so something I, I've heard you talk about before was how. You, um, the important thing here was not so much um, what people said, not the content, but um, how they said it, the context around it. Can you maybe tell us why, why that's important? Well, you, you pretty well said that very beautifully. Yes, Mary, Mary Main um, developed the adult attachment interview because she wanted to find some way. She, you know, we had this strange situation which would kind of a, a, a describe attachment patterns in one to two-year-olds. So she said, well, how are we going to measure attachment in adult life? And so she developed the, uh, essentially a kind of open-ended questionnaire. So it was a kind of semi-structured interview, essentially, in which people were asked about their relationships with their parents, any traumatic events or loss events that had happened in childhood, um, and about their developmental history. And what she kind of, and she then wanted to look at the results, as it were, of these questionnaires in relation to parents and their children. And so she classified the parents as, uh, she used the same classificatory system, insecure, secure. But what she found was, as you so beautifully put it, what seemed to be the crucial discriminatory uh, factors were not the content, wasn't the extent to which you'd been neglected, let's say, as a child, or even abused as a child, or the number of loss events you'd had to experience. Because after all, at least for large percentages of the world population, adversity is the norm. And as I said right at the beginning, if we think about attachment as the kind of interpersonal immune system, we deal with adversity with the help of our attachment dynamic, which essentially means our caregivers. So what Mary Main found was it wasn't exactly the, the uh, content, the adversity itself that matters, it's the way that a person talks about their experience, that discriminated between securely attached infants and insecurely attached infants, the way the parents talked about their experience. And therefore, she had this idea that those who had a kind of dismissing attachment, um, verbal discourse, where you'd say, what sort of childhood did you have? Oh, just a normal childhood. Or what were your parents like? Oh, they were just brilliant. That would be kind of dismissing. Whereas the more uh, the parents who could provide security for their infants would be more likely to say, well, on the whole, my, my childhood was okay, but there were a few problems. You know, my dad drank a bit too much. My parents didn't always get on that well. Um, and, you know, sometimes I came back from school and was nobody in the house. And I found that pretty scary. I mean, that would be a kind of typical um, secure attachment narrative, even though it's describing something that's actually you might say, adv adverse. So that's a hugely important point, I think. And I think it's a very important point for psychotherapists because we psychotherapists do get a bit hooked up or hooked on narrative and the story that we will tell ourselves. Um, and we even tell our patients their story for them. Whereas it may well be that psychological health has much more or as much to do with the, what we make of our story and how we describe it and talk about it as to the content of the story itself. And that's where 
again, another link or another uh, direction towards mentalizing, because mentalizing in a way is very much um, not just talking about the facts, you know, but much more about the kind of dynamic, the feelings, the, um, the, the view of the world, as it were, that's implicit in a securely attached narrative. So you might say, well, you know, my mum got a bit fed up with my dad. And when she got fed up, you know, she did often just sort of retreat to bed and let us kids rampage around the house. Well, that would be quite a mentalizing statement because it would be, as it were, imagining what might be going on in the mum's mind. Whereas, and that would be classified as secure attachment and as quite high functioning mentalizing. Whereas someone would just said, I don't know, my mother just spent all the time in bed. That's not a particularly mentalizing statement. I mean, uh, even though it's entirely true. I do think this is important because, of course, there's a lot of research in a non-psychotherapeutic research, but it's very robust about adverse childhood events and how adverse childhood events um, are associated with adult psychopathology. And it's a numerical association. The more adverse childhood events, parental divorce, separation, drug addiction, etc., the more adverse events there are, the more prone you are going to be to adult psychotherapy, so um, psychopathology. So um, there's a kind of sociological aspect. But if we're, as it were, going into the mind, then the psychological aspect, then this idea of mentalizing and this idea of secure attachment as demonstrated with the uh, adult attachment interview becomes much more salient. It's really interesting. And do you think this means that if therapists are able to help their clients move towards more expressive um, forms of communication and more, yeah, more expressive, more secure forms of communication that can actually influence their attachment style and how they relate to others. Do you think that is, is that going too far or is that within the realm of possibility? Totally agree with that. So that in a way, you know, I like to think of therapy as a kind of school for uh, affect regulation, um, secure narrative, mentalizing, and that's all sort of developed in the relation, therapeutic relationship. And then if things go well, that is then generalized into the outside world. And then the ther- as it were, the, the, the patient is no longer facing inward to themselves, but facing outward to the world. And they um, will then be able to sort of as it were, engage in the social world that we live in, but also pick up on positive experience and not be completely thrown by negative experience Mm. because we're all the time um, having to face this whole range of negative and positive in our daily lives. 100%. Um, So now, just before we end, Professor Holmes, I'd like to ask you about um, the work of, well, not specifically Carl Friston, but some of his the free energy principle and this idea of um, whenever we're in therapy, we're essentially bor- borrowing the brain of the therapist. And this whole idea of the therapist helps us to detect an- anomalies and what, why this is important. Right. Well, this has been something that's interested me for the last few years, um, coming back, as it were, to my first love of science and neuroscience and seeing whether it provides a kind of framework um, for thinking about uh, psychotherapeutic work, especially from this kind of rather eclectic um, ecumenical uh, position that I espouse. I think the easiest way to think about this is to contrast the way in a kind of common sense way, where I think we tend to think that our brain and our mind are a little bit like a camera or a sound recorder we simply reflect what's out there. Um, and anyone who's actually listened to themselves on a tape recorder or seen a photograph of themselves knows jolly well how that's not the case. That's a bit of an aside. But actually, that's not quite how the neuroscience tells us it is. We don't simply, the, the famous um, novel by Christopher Isherwood from the 1930s got turned into the 
musical cabaret, and that novel was called I Am A Camera. Well, actually, we're not cameras at all. We actually create the world that we see and hear and which we inhabit. Our brains, through, well, in my case, far more years of experience than I care to mention, have an enormous bulk of experience, which means that we don't, as it were, have to and cannot see the world afresh every time we open our eyes. I mean, one good example of this is the fact that we see the world in colour, um, whereas in fact, our um, colour-sensitive parts of the eyes are only concentrated in the middle bit, and we simply fill in colour around the periphery. Um, so we've got this idea, okay, so how does the brain create the world which we inhabit? Well, what the neuroscientists and um, neurocomputational scientists have uh, begun to develop, and these ideas really come from trying to create a, a brain-like computer, is the idea, we've got to think that um, the brain is kind of locked away in its little box, the skull, and it receives information at the periphery, the eye, the ear, the sensory system, the proprioceptive system, the receptors in the gut and the heart and the lungs. And these are sending messages, as it were, up to the brain. And in order to not be overwhelmed, we simply match this incoming sensations with our pre-existing model of the world. So I'm looking at you, we've met several times. I just say, oh, right, that's now. I don't sort of have to create you anew. And then I can attend to the new bit of our relationship, which is this conversation we're having now. So for, as it were, economic reasons, for reasons of economy, the brain is not creating the world that it finds itself in. It's always looking for novelty and attending, as it were, to this little um, growth point. Um, and that kind of model can then be, we can think about this model, uh, it, it, it works quite well in relation to psychoanalytic ideas. Uh, Carl Friston is no, he's, did train as a psychiatrist, but actually he's essentially a neuroscientist and a mathematician. Um, but if you think about our idea about transference, what we're really saying to our patients when we think about um, the way in which they kind of um, bring transferential expectations into their relationships, including their relationship with us, is that you are kind of your top-down model of the world, which is that people are not to be trusted, let's say, going back to what we were saying about borderline, your top-down model of the world um, is incongruent with your present moment experience. And what we need to do is to kind of look at the discrepancies between your bottom-up, free associative, incoming experience and your assumptions that you top down imposed upon them. So I think these ideas do feed in quite helpfully into the psychotherapeutic work that we do. And the fundamental, one of the fundamental ideas that Friston has is that the brain by, as it were, imposing its top down view of the world is trying to avoid what he calls surprise. Now, why is he trying to uh, avoid surprise? He's trying to avoid surprise because surprise kind of equates to chaos. And ultimately, we need to preserve the status quo. We need to preserve equilibrium, if you like. Um, and this certainly works in terms of physiology. You know, the, the physiological system is designed to keep the pH of our blood more or less static, depending what we, irrespective of what we eat or drink. Um, and um, the, uh, uh, so we have a whole lot of physiological systems maintaining homeostasis, if you like. Well, the same applies in the brain. The brain wants, as it were, to keep things safe and steady. And in order to do that, given the fact that the world is always changing, we have to be adaptive. We have to be, from the top down, developing new models, new understandings. I mean, like in this conversation I'm having with you, I'm actually seeing a slightly different side to uh, Niall, who's kind of in, uh, because we've never had an in-depth conversation like this before, and I didn't realize how, actually extremely well versed you are in attachment theory. Um, so 
um, my sort of model of you has slightly shifted, as it were, um, from just someone who I can recognize visually. So um, the, I find this, you know, you might say, well, what's this got to do with psychotherapy? Well, it's got quite a lot to do with psychotherapy for two reasons. One, that it helps us to understand counter-transference and counter-transference. But I also um, bring in the idea of the borrowed brain and the idea, if we go back to Jim Cohen's experiment, that in the presence of a therapist, you can tolerate the unexpected, you can tolerate surprise, you don't have to push it away and suppress it in a transferential way, you can more likely live in the present moment and be adapted to the present moment because you feel safe enough to do so. So I'm trying to bring these current neuroscience and neurocomputational ideas into a kind of conversation with psychodynamic and psychoanalytic ideas. I don't know if that sort of addresses your question, but that's sort of what I'm to some extent struggling with or working on at the moment. Um, no, it, it does really well. Um, and it's just such an interesting idea. And again, something you've, you've said before in one of your talks with us is that trauma is essentially a negative experience for which people have no model. You know, and I think that was such a nice illustration of the point, you know. Um, so just to finish up now, Professor Holmes, um, I, at the start of the, the conversation, I asked you about three books that you'd recommend that every therapist should read. Um, do, you, do you remember what, what those were? And we can just sort of give some recommendations. It's very difficult. I did. Um, there's a kind of the British Journal of Psychiatry has a, or used to have a kind of series called which was like Desert Island Discs. So it was your 10 best books. And I did do my 10 best books. Um, well, I'll just tell you the three that came to mind, but whether they, whether they really are the ones, um, the three that came to mind for me were Peter Fonagy, What Works For Whom. Okay. War and Peace. Okay, that's interesting. Every therapist needs to read novels because novels are, in a way, another form of the kind of work that we're doing, that it's trying to understand human beings and their relationships. And then I've got to plug one of my books. <laughs> of course, of course. So I'd say my latest, um, well, I was, actually, I was going to say um, The Brain Has a Mind of Its Own, but no, the, the book that I wrote with Arietta Slade, um, Attachment and Therapeutic Practice. I think that's the one that's most relevant to this conversation because we're, what we try to do is to show the ways in which attachment theory are relevant to the work that we psychotherapists do. Brilliant. Thank you very much. We'll include those in the, in the show notes for this, this episode, Professor Holmes. Um, now, just a final question. Um, is there anything that you now know um, about therapy or about therapeutic practice that you wish you had have known whenever you were first starting out? Well, okay, I'm going to answer your question with a quote. Um, and the quote is from two of my sort of psychoanalytic heroes. Um, and um, it was in a paper um, Tom Ogden wrote um, about post-qualification. So we train as therapists, however long it takes, four or five years, and then you're qualified. And then the question is, what happens next? Um, and um, Ogden, who wrote this paper with Glenn Gabbard, so these are two, uh, as I say, two of my sort of psychoanalytics heroes, they said, well, the task post-qualification is A, to kill the father, and B, to honour your ancestors. Okay. And translating that, I would say what that means is you it's no good just being a pale imitation of your own therapist. You have to find your own voice, not just your own therapist, your own teachers. You have to find your own voice. You have to find your individuality on the one hand. But at the same time, we all do need to feel that we belong to a tradition. And it may not matter what that tradition is, but it gives you a sense of continuity and a sense of a kind of developmental process. And in a way, I think that aphorism contains the two essences of or the essence of psychotherapy which is two essences one is the idea that we are sort of 
products of our past, products of our developmental history. Um, and the other is that we have to an extent a degree of freedom, a degree of spontaneity. Mm. Um, and we somehow need to balance both in ourselves and in the ways in which we help our patients, this tension, even paradox, even incompatibility between the idea that we, as it were, are products of history, and yet at the same time, we're making ourselves at the same time. So another aphorism there would be what we make of what we're made of. Brilliant. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Um, thank you very much for sharing that. Um, so, yeah, um, in terms of just uh, things to do after this interview for any, anybody that's interested in following up, definitely Professor Holmes' books. Um, I think it's Attachment and Therapeutic Practice, which he co-authored with Ariadna Slade. His latest book is The Brain Has a Mind of Its Own. And he's also got um, a book on which he mentioned to start the interview on uh, Bowlby. What's that one called again? Sorry. John Bowlby and Attachment Theory. That one, yeah. Search for the Secure Base. Yep. And you've also, um, you've given two talks for the Weekend University that are just freely available on YouTube where these ideas are explored in a little bit more depth. So, um, yeah, that, that's the kind of follow-up resources I would recommend. Are there any you'd add in addition to that? No, I think I'm done. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, Professor Williams, thank you so much for sharing some of your wisdom with us today. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Great. Nice to see you.